Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Every floor serves a different cuisine. In the nursery, children are just waking from their afternoon naps. Along the corridor, there's a doctor's surgery, psychiatrist and massage therapist. Downstairs, the gym boasts the latest sports equipment, with spare exercise clothes, so there's no excuse not to sweat. There are even beds for anyone feeling a little bit tired. But this isn't a hotel, a spa, or even a luxury members club. This is an office. I'm James Frencham, and you're listening to Money Talks, our weekly podcast about the world of business on Economist Radio. I've come to the new billion-dollar European HQ of Goldman Sachs in the City of London to see the latest evolution of the office. How did it change from a functional grid of desks into a place you might never need to leave? Work is no longer somewhere you go to. It is something you do anywhere. Will other companies follow Goldman's lead? It's a total misnomer that the only buildings that can be healthy buildings are these shiny new flagship buildings. And what about the bottom line? Is it really good for business? There's a lot of snake oil, I think, being sold by the real estate strategy and design industry to confuse the consumer. What happens in offices matters far beyond their walls. They are engines of global growth. In rich countries, a third of the workforce toils behind a desk. But technology and the jobs market are reshaping the lives of those who work in offices, the employers who manage those offices, and the landlords that own them. Despina Katsakakis of Cushman and Wakefield has been consulting companies on how to make the workplace work better for 35 years. Early 1980s, when I started working in this field, the big challenge was how do we accommodate the desktop computer into the building, which, of course, created new working patterns, people working in larger groups, more heat in buildings, different behavior. By the time some of those buildings were actually built, this new thing called the laptop came along and technology had left the building. Well, if we take it full circle 30 years on, work is no longer somewhere you go to. It is something you do anywhere. So the role of the office has completely changed from symbolizing hierarchy and control to being a place that can really identify and represent a culture's um, brand, behavior, values, and drive community. Okay, so it sounds like four building walls trying to catch up with technology. That's a really good way to put it because real estate moves very slowly and technology moves at a completely different pace. And whilst we accommodate that change in our day-to-day life, we don't expect that same level of technology interface and liberation in the workplace. But it's, it's changing. It is changing dramatically and it's changing because of three significant factors. The first one is that As technology has left the building, 
traditional office space is very inefficient and underutilized because people work on the road at clients from home. Typically, most office buildings are occupied about 40 to 50 percent of a typical working day. So there's great inefficiency. The second driver is that typically office space does not support people to do their best work because people require a variety of activities to focus, to collaborate, to concentrate, to renew. And the third and very important one is that increasingly there is a greater awareness of organizations of the value of people and the impact that the work environment has on people, particularly in today's world where one in three people in Europe suffer some stress-related illness, creating a huge economic risk for companies. So it's inefficient, ineffective, and uninspiring, not really fit for purpose. The factory office, as you might call it, multi-level repeat floors going up into the air, is really a follow-on from the Industrial Revolution. Tom Alexander is an architect with the firm Orca Swanke. I asked him how buildings have changed to accommodate these new ways of working. And it's a kind of decision led by the CEO of the business. I need people to do a job. Let's put them into here. What's happened in the last 20 years, particularly in the tech industry, is they've come out of different types of space. They might have started in a garage and moved into an old factory or an old um, industrial brick building. And they tend to have a lot of volume, a lot of light, daylight, fresh air. They have big staircases. And they started to see the benefits of that. And it was in the tech industry where innovation and creativity are among the most valuable resources, that inspiration struck from an unexpected place. What we noticed, though, was that the whole way of working in a different series of environments was, was a kind of primal thing back from the nursery. If you look at a nursery school, you will see a whole series of settings in which the little toddlers are, are doing something, some activity. Um, you might just have a rug on the floor um, with two kids playing with a ball. If the ball rolls off the rug, they, they kind of say, oh, it's gone away from my territory. Do I retrieve it or let it go? And that defines their territory. They also have uh, tables where they'll sit around in groups. Uh, they'll have a didactic position somewhere in the nursery where a teacher or a carer is looking at them and telling them a story. They're sitting on cushions. And you might have some solo places where they're just sitting on a sofa doing something on their own. If you then take that forward to somebody in their 20s uh, and a whole organization that employs people, you start to see those same elements in a tech environment. So the beanbag as a, as a kind of icon has really kind of expanded as a notion of, of a kind of place where you can stop and pause and, and chat in a different kind of way from your desk or the meeting room. But beyond beanbags, how does this translate into the design of a building itself? One of the schemes we've designed, we call it the chassis, is literally a frame, a structure for a building that is very agile. You say, I'm not going to put a floor plate in on every level. I'm going to create uh, three floors of no, no floors, a volume, with some staircases and platforms and some breakout spaces and allow people to, to go and do some, some social type working or some pure socialising if, if that's what they want to do for a break. But it's interesting because then its value gets challenged. Um, people say, you're not putting that floor plate in, so how am I getting my rental return on the building? And then the investors and the developers are asking that question. Um, you know, it, it's about valuing people's space around them rather than just the, the footprint on which it is valued by square feet. 
which is like saying, what's the value of your shoes? And our chassis building is, is the idea of it being a 100-year building, that it can change. And um, we think that's really key because there are many buildings that were put up that really are 20, 30-year lifespan buildings. And I think our responsibility is far greater than that now as architects. It's all too easy to put more boxes on the surface of the earth but what are they really doing and, and are they really just for investment or are they providing the, the kind of shelter and the environment for us to do things like work and live and sleep? One of the most visible proponents of the new look Office as Home has been WeWork. 2019 was supposed to be the year that it floated on the stock market. The hip young company at one point was expected to be valued at up to $47 billion. Instead, in the autumn, it had to scrap its plans for an IPO after its CEO stepped down amid claims of mismanagement and doubts over its business model. With its concept now looking shaky, I asked Espina how much WeWork was a driver or a product of this game change in office design. I don't think WeWork created anything different. Co-working's been around for a very long time. Regis was around a good 15-plus years before WeWork. WeWork did two really important things, though. They created a very compelling brand in the sense that we don't see in property companies. Just the simple emotional connection of saying, enjoy what you do. The main thing they did was to focus on this notion that when you connect with others actually brings value which of course it does, and most effective organizations do that curation within their space. The thing they really drove, though, was their connecting with others across the space in the wider ecosystem within the building actually is of value. So if you look at buildings that are really groundbreaking, like 22 Bishopsgate in the city, Here's a 1.3 million square foot building that actually creates a vertical community, a vertical village, and acknowledges the fact that the 12,000 people within the building will gain quite a bit from connecting with one another. We're here at 22 Bishopsgate. It's a 63-story building in the center of the city of London. It's still a bit of a building site. The walls are kind of bare, a lot of concrete. Uh, there's a lot of guys in high-vis jackets, contractors walking up and down the stairs off to their early lunch. It's about midday here. And just heading up to the fifth floor to meet Harry Badham of AXA, the developer of the building. Hello, James. Nice to see you. Nice How to meet you? you. Most of the building is still a shell, but on the fifth floor there's a glimpse of what Despina, who consulted on the project, and the developers, AXA and Lipton Rogers, hope for it. Harry took me over to a scale model, peopled with tiny office workers, to tell me how their idea of a vertical village is supposed to work. Perhaps 10, 15 years ago, buildings tried to close out. They tried to put a big logo on the top and lots of marble in the front door. Whereas to us, actually creating a, a vertical village is about bringing those things in and allowing people to collaborate with one another. We kind of see that those boundaries breaking down. If you have two different people working for two different businesses, but they share common interests, then they're part of your village, part of your community. But you can see here, looking at this model, particularly floors 2, 7, 25, 
41 and 57, so around about 150,000 square feet, which in layman's terms is about three acres, um, of space that is food, learning, gym, well-being, uh, and club space. And who is driving this kind of change? You perhaps wouldn't have done this in a building you developed 10, 15 years ago. So is this coming from, from occupiers? Is this coming from their em- employees? Where is the demand for this space coming 100%, from? A hundred percent. Whilst this is unusual for a landlord to be looking at this in this respect, particularly on a speculative building, a hundred percent has something been happening a lot in the past, but it's been happening behind closed doors because occupiers have been doing this. Where it's led from is, is what the person wants, what people want. There's competition out there, unemployment's record low. There's difficulty recruiting, retaining, uh, motivating. The productivity gap in this country continues to be uh, a mystery to us. So all of those things are all about the individual, the person at work. Every company wants to get the best people to keep them and to make them as productive as possible. So everything that we're doing here and everything that we've seen a number of large businesses do themselves of putting in big food courts, they've done it to attract and retain their staff. And that doesn't come for free, obviously. So who's paying for it ultimately? It's always us who pays. No, listen, we, we pay. As with any capital intensive business like real estate, we pay uh, because we know that it will generate a long-term sustainable income stream. I think we believe very strongly, of, of course, as a long-term investor, that those things will come out in the longer term, that buildings that look after the people within them will perform better, will demand higher rent, will have more sustainability of income than those which don't. So the idea is that people will pay a premium to be here? Uh, that's, a, that, that's feeding me with words, isn't it? We, we, we've always priced this building at the market rate because today it's unproven what people will pay. But I think when you can prove empirically with data how buildings perform, I think rather than just it's X square feet so the rent is Y, it's more around what am I getting out of this and how do I link my performance or my service level to what I'm paying. Uh, when you look at every business, 70-80% of their cost is staff, probably 5% is real estate. We've historically been focused on the 5% in real estate and trying to make it 4.9%. Whereas actually what we should be trying to do is to say, if you can retain 10% more staff by being in an environment that your people want to work in and therefore will work for you and are more likely to stay with you, that saving to the business is vastly greater than saving £5 on the rent. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to Money Talks, where we're taking a tour around the future of the office. From spare gym kit to childcare, some of these shiny new workspaces seem to offer it all. But what about the bottom line? Is it all worth it? How do you quantify the value these developments claim to add? Hi, I'm Tim Alban. I'm the chief executive and the founder of the Leesman Index. You know, to be honest, I, I was facing the same question back in around 2009, 2010, when I was advising corporate organisations on, on why they should invest huge sums and huge energies in new corporate workplace. And 
found myself struggling to justify the reasons why. So in a crazy moment, decided to try and develop a, an international standardised methodology for doing exactly that, testing and measuring how corporate space supports corporate activity. So in the, in the 10 years since, we've now measured the employee experience of nearly 635,000 employees across 4,400 plus workplaces in 92 countries in some very, very far and distant parts of the world. So what does the Leesman Index tell us about productivity? I suppose the the first thing it tells us is that some workplaces are supporting organisations very well and, and some are supporting them miserably. In a recent study we undertook, one in five brand new workplaces were consistently delivering below global average results. Uh, If we look at the UK alone, just 57% of employees in the workplaces we've measured in the UK before a refurbishment, just 57% agree. That leaves a pretty stark, you know, 27% in active disagreement that that space supports what they're employed to do. I think that's quite a a telling and sad indictment on on the state of the UK corporate real estate portfolio. That's pretty astonishing. And so what can employers do then to improve their spaces? You know, what does your survey tell us about what matters most to employees? Unfortunately, some of the things will come as a surprise to organisations that it's not that difficult. There's a lot of snake oil, I think, being sold by the real estate strategy and design industry to confuse the consumer. When actually, what it almost always comes down to in some very basic and fundamental needs, which I find myself questioning whether the answer is just too simple. Um, But it's about understanding the employee, understanding their role in the organisation and providing them with the tools that they need to do that job. And what about the somewhat trivial, perhaps, the quality of the coffee or, you know, the provision of ping pong tables? (laughs) Well, we don't have ping pong tables in the Leesman Index, I'm afraid, or bean bags or foosball tables or basketball nets. But we do ask about tea, coffee and refreshment facilities. Globally, 77% of employees would rate that as an important workplace feature. It is more important than computing equipment. It's more important than noise levels, natural light, storage. So number three on our ranking table after desk and a chair is tea, coffee and refreshment facilities. Which probably explains why I'm in a dark corner, but I have very good coffee. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. One of the things we do see, though, is that great tea and coffee facilities actually can fuel many other things. And Things like take the pressure off of meeting rooms. Because if you've got a great restaurant or a cafe space with great coffee, people will meet there. So don't undervalue or underestimate something as simple as tea and coffee, and, and especially in some other parts of the world. I know us Brits are snobbish about our tea and the Swedes snobbish about their coffee, but you know you go into India and some parts of sub-Saharan Africa and, and the refreshment part of the day actually starts to form a, a part of the sort of social fabric that glues organisations together. Of course, it's not as simple as a well-caffeinated employee being a happy employee. There's a deeper impact, which explains how small changes in an office environment can have a big knock-on effect on productivity. The person who manages your building has a greater impact on your health than your doctor. Joe Allen is a professor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where he directs the Healthy Buildings Program, which is also the title of his new book. What underpins this is this key stat that we spend nearly 90% of our time indoors. In fact, we we are now an indoor species. If we live until we're 80 years old, we'll have spent 72 years of our life indoors. And a large chunk of that happens in our offices. Wow, okay. And what is it about perhaps sitting at our desks that really affect our health? 
Well, you probably think about all the things that affect your health, well-being, and productivity, things like your boss, the type of work you're doing, uh, whether you had coffee that morning. Uh, but it also turns out that the building is influencing your ability to perform at your peak. And this is everything from air quality, water quality, the thermal conditions in your space, uh, the amount of allergens that are in the dust. Decades of research shows that when we increase the amount of fresh air that comes inside, we reduce the amount of sick building symptoms, we reduce worker absenteeism, we increase cognitive function performance. And the problem is that over these 30 or 40 years, we've started to choke off the air supply in our buildings. We've stopped letting our buildings breathe. And this is in response to the energy crisis in the 1970s and our efforts to conserve energy, which are all good and valid. But in trying to conserve energy, we've tightened up the building envelope so much that we've stopped letting these buildings breathe. As a result, you get a buildup of indoor pollutants. So I've been around uh, quite a few buildings here in London, and they all seem to kind of claim that they're kind of flagships of health and well-being. Goldman Sachs's new European HQ and also Bloomberg's new HQ. That's a breathable building, for example. But in these cases, they both cost over a billion dollars. Hardly any companies can afford to spend that amount of money. So what do the rest of them do? I think it's a total misnomer. I don't think it. I know it's a total misnomer that the only buildings that can be healthy buildings are these shiny new uh, flagship buildings. And in fact, I'd argue that for this healthy buildings movement to be a success, it cannot be constrained to just these elite players. And with each type of movement, it requires leadership and people doing things and setting new standards so that eventually they become the norm. And every time you do something new for the first time, there is a cost premium. But if you include the benefit, and if you include employee health and performance in that cost-benefit analysis, the benefits far outweigh the costs every single time. What kind of multiplier are we talking here? Well, I'll give you an example in that study I mentioned, the COG effects study, where we increased the ventilation rate. We estimated the cost across different climate zones. And what would it cost to increase that the amount of fresh air that comes in? And we estimate the cost on the order of 10 to 40 U.S. dollars per person per year. Now, that might seem like it's expensive. But when we took those same data from our study and estimated the productivity benefits, we find the benefits are on the order of six to 7,000 U.S. dollars per person per year. The problem has been is that when you think about cost, if you're the facilities manager, that cost is real. So you do what you can to minimize that cost. And it's not necessarily the facilities manager's job to think about how that's going to influence productivity of the people in that space. If an executive brings these factors together, the cost for healthy buildings against the performance benefits, every single time human health and performance will outweigh any additional cost to achieve a healthy building. The building, if you do it right, can become a human resources tool. You'll see benefits in terms of employee retention, in terms of employee recruitment. And then when you've spent all that money to get these great talent into your building, you can leverage the building to help them achieve their maximum performance. Now, the cynic in me would say that yes, casinos, for example, they're really good at pumping fresh air in in order to make you gamble longer and empty your pockets out and so on. But isn't that just what's happening here? that if you build an office that nobody really needs to leave, employers can squeeze more out of their staff while claiming they're treating them like royalty. I put that to Despina Katsikakis. I think there's definitely a point to that, but that's happening regardless. So the way we use technology today has blurred the boundaries of working, living, learning. Most people will look at their mobile phone as soon as they wake up in the morning and be engaged with some work connection. So 
I think what's really interesting is when we begin to think about the office environment as a place that can contribute to your well-being, we are focusing more on the need for human beings to renew in order to be productive, which is something that we don't spend a lot of time really discussing. What would it be like if you leave work feeling better than when you arrived? What does that mean to your relationship with your family, your stress levels, to your wider community? So I think it's a much bigger social issue that we're starting to untap by looking at the impact the physical office has on people. The evolution of the office is still very much a work in progress. A recent worldwide survey of 600,000 office staff by Liesman, Tim Oldman's company, found that 40% thought their office prevented them from working productively. As the way we work continues to change, the places we work are struggling to keep up. Companies with the ambition and resources of Goldman Sachs' new London home are still the exception. But they offer a glimpse of the foreseeable future for office workers everywhere. To read more about the evolution of the office, you can get full access to our print, digital and audio editions by subscribing. Go to economist.com forward slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for £12 or $12. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm James Rancham. In London, from the Office of the Future, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.